to enter out into that city that was the city at eight o'clock of a misty evening in November, to put your feet upon that buckling concrete, to step over grassy seams and make your way, hands in pockets, through the silence. That was what Mr. Leonard Meade most dearly loved to do. He would stand upon the corner of an intersection and peer down long moonlit avenues of sidewalk in four directions, deciding which way to go, but it really made no difference. He was alone in this world of A.D. 2053, or as good as alone, and with the final decision made, a path selected, he would stride off, sending patterns of frosty air before him like the smoke of a cigar. Sometimes, he would walk for hours and miles and return only at midnight to his house, and on his way he would see the cottages and homes with their dark windows, and it was not unequal to walking through a graveyard where only the faintest glimmers of firefly light appeared and flickers behind the windows. Sudden gray phantoms seemed to manifest upon inner room walls where a curtain was still undrawn against the night, or there were whisperings and murmurs where a window in a tomb-like building was still open. Mr. Leonard Mead would pause, cock his head, listen, look, and march on his feet making no noise on the lumpy sidewalk. For long ago, he had wisely changed his sneakers when strolling at night, because the dogs and the intermittent squads would parallel his journey with barkings if he wore hard heels, and lights might click on and faces appear, and an entire street be startled by the passing of a lone figure, himself in the early November evening. On this particular evening, he began his journey in a westerly direction, toward the hidden sea. There was a good crystal frost in the air, it cut the nose and made the lungs blaze like a Christmas tree inside. You could feel the cold light going on and off, all the branches filled with invisible snow. He listened to the faint push of his soft shoes through autumn leaves with satisfaction, and whistled a cold, quiet whistle between his teeth, occasionally picking up a leaf as he passed, examining its skeletal pattern in the infrequent lamplights as he went on, smelling its rusty smell. Hello in there, he whispered to every house on every side as he moved. What's up tonight on Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 9? Where are the cowboys rushing? And do I see the United States Cavalry over the next hill to the rescue? The street was silent and long and empty, with only his, his shadow moving like the shadow of a hawk in mid-country. If he closed his eyes and stood very still, frozen, he could imagine himself upon the center of a plain, a wintry, windless Arizona desert with no house in a thousand miles and only dry riverbeds. The streets for company. What is it now? He asked the houses, noticing his, rich, his wristwatch. 8.30 p.m., time for a dozen assorted murders, a quiz, a review, a comedian falling off stage. Was that a murmur of laughter from within a, within a moon-white house? He hesitated, but went on. And when nothing more happened, he stumbled over a particularly uneven section of sidewalk. The cement was vanishing under flowers and grass. In ten years of walking by night or day for thousands of miles, he had never met another person walking. Not once in all that time. He came to a cloverleaf intersection, which stood silent, where two main highways crossed the town. During the day, it was, the thun it was a thunderous surge of cars. The gas stations opened, a great insect rustling and a ceaselessly jockeying for position as the scarab beetles, a faint incense puttering from their exhausts, skimmed homeward to the far directions. But now these days, too, were like streams in a dry season, all stone and bed and moon radiance. He turned back on a side street, circling around toward his home. He was within a block of his destination when the lone car turned a corner quite suddenly and flashed a fierce white cone of light upon him. He stood entranced, not unlike a night moth, stunned by the illumination, and then drawn toward it. 
a metallic voice called to him. Stand still. Stay where you are. Don't move. He halted. Put up your hands. The police, of course. But what a rare, incredible thing in a city of three million. There was only one police car left. Wasn't that correct? Ever since a year ago, 2052, the election year, the force had been cut down from three cars to one. Crime was ebbing and there was no need now for the police, save for this one lone car wandering and wandering the empty streets. Your name, said the police car. Almost got attacked by B. Your name, said the police car in a metallic whisper. He couldn't see the men in it, in it for the bright light in his eyes. Leonard Mead, he said. Speak up. Leonard Mead. Business or profession? I guess you'd call me a writer. No profession, said the police car as if, talking to himself. The light held him fixed, like a museum specimen. Needle thrust through chest. You might say that, said Mr. Mead. He hadn't written in years. Magazines and books didn't sell anymore. Everything went on in the tomb-like houses at night now. He thought continuing his fancy, the tombs, hill-lit by television light, where the people sat like the dead, the gray of multicolored lights, touching their faces, but never really touching them. No profession, said the phonograph's voice, hissing. What are you doing out? Walking, said Leonard Mead. Walking? Just walking, he said simply, but his face felt cold. Walking, just walking? Walking? Yes, sir. Walking where? For what? Walking for air. Walking to sea. Your address? I live in South St. James Street. And there is air in your house? You have an air conditioner, Mr. Mead? Yes. You have a viewing screen in your house to see with? No. No, there was a crackling, quiet that in itself was an accusation. Are you married, Mr. Mead? No. Not married, said the police voice behind the fiery beam. The moon was high and clear among the stars, and the houses were gray and silent. Nobody wanted me, said Leonard Mead with a smile. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. Leonard Mead just waited in the cold night. Just walking, Mr. Mead. Yes, but you haven't explained for what purpose. I explained for air and to see and just to walk. Have you done this often? Every night for years. The police car sat in the center of the street with its radio throat faintly humming. Well, Mr. Mead, it said. Is that all? he asked politely. Yes, said the voice. Here, there was a sigh. A pop. The back door of the police car sprang wide. Get in. Wait a minute, I haven't done anything. Get in. I protest. Mr. Mead. He walked like a man suddenly drunk. As he passed the front window of the car, he looked in. As he had expected, there was no one in the front seat. No one in the car at all. Get in. He put his hand to the door and peered into the back seat, which was a little cell. A little black jail with bars. It smelled of riveted steel. It smelled of harsh antiseptic. It smelled too clean and hard and metallic. There was nothing soft there. Now if you had a wife to give you an alibi, said the iron voice. But, where are you taking me? The car hesitated, or rather gave a faint whirring click, as if information somewhere was dropping card by punch-slotted card under electronic eyes to the Psychiatric Center for Research on Regressive Tendencies. He got in. The door shut with a soft thud. The police car rolled through the night avenues, flashing its dim lights ahead. They passed one house on one street. A moment later, one house, an entire city of houses that were all dark. But this one particular house had all of its electric lights brightly lit. Every window allowed yellow illumination, square and warm in the cool darkness. That's my house, said Lena Reed. No one answered him. The car moved down the empty riverbed, streets and off away, leaving the empty streets with the empty sidewalks, no sound and no motion at all. The rest of the chill November night. The last night of the world. What would you do if you knew that this was the last night of the world? What would I do? You mean seriously? Yes, 
seriously. I don't know. I hadn't thought. He poured some coffee. In the background the two girls were playing blocks on the parlor rug in the light of the green hurricane lamps. There was an easy, clean aroma of the brewed coffee in the evening air. Well, better start thinking about it, he said. You don't mean it, he nodded. A war? He shook his head. Not the hydrogen or atom bomb? No. Or germ warfare? None of those at all, he said stirring his coffee slowly. But just, let's say, the closing of a book. I don't think I understand. No, nor do I, really, it's just a feeling. Sometimes it frightens me, sometimes I'm not frightened at all but at peace. He glanced in at the girls and their yellow hair shining in the lamplight. I didn't say anything to you. It first happened about four nights ago. What? A dream I had. I dreamed that it was all going to be over and a voice said it was, not any kind of voice I can remember, but a voice anyway, and it said things would stop here on earth. I didn't think too much about it the next day, but then I went to the office and caught Stan Willis looking out the window in the middle of the afternoon, and I said a penny for your thoughts, Stan, and he said, I had a dream last night, and before he even told me the dream I knew what it was, I could have told him, but he told me and I listened to him. It was the same dream? The same. I told Stan I had dreamed it too. He didn't seem surprised. He relaxed, in fact. Then we started walking through the office, for the hell of it. It wasn't planned. We didn't say, let's walk around. We just walked on our own, and everywhere we saw people looking at their desks or their hands or out windows. I talked to a few. So did Stan. And they all had dreamed? All of them. The same dream, with no difference. Do you believe in it? Yes. I've never been more certain. And when will it stop? The world, I mean. Sometime during the night for us, and then as the night goes on around the world, that'll go too. It'll take 24 hours for it all to go. They sat a while not touching their coffee. Then they lifted it slowly and drank looking at each other. Do we deserve this? She said. It's not a matter of deserving, it's just that things didn't work out. I notice you didn't even argue about this. Why not? I guess I've a reason, she said. The same one everyone at the office had? She nodded slowly. I didn't want to say anything. It happened last night. And the woman on the block talked about it among themselves today. They dreamed. I thought it was only a coincidence. She picked up the evening paper. There's nothing in the paper about it. Everyone knows, so there's no need. He sat back in his chair, watching her. Are you afraid? No. I always thought I would be but I'm not. Where's that spirit called self-preservation they talk so much about? I don't know. You don't get too excited when you feel things are logical. This is logical. Nothing else but this could have happened from the way we've lived. We haven't been too bad, have we? No, nor enormously good. I suppose that's the trouble. We haven't been very much of anything except us, while a big part of the world was busy being lots of quite awful things. The girls were laughing in the parlor. I always thought people would be screaming in the streets at a time like this. I guess not. You don't scream about the real thing. Do you know, I won't miss anything but you and the girls. I never liked cities or my work or anything except you three. I won't miss a thing except perhaps the change in the weather, and a glass of ice water when it's hot and I might miss sleeping. How can we sit here and talk this way? Because there's nothing else to do. That's it, 
Of course, for if there were, we'd be doing it. I suppose this is the first time in the history of the world that everyone has known just what they were going to do during the night. I wonder what everyone else will do now, this evening, for the next few hours. Go to a show, listen to the radio, watch television, play cards, put the children to bed, go to bed themselves, like always. In a way that's something to be proud of. Like always, they sat a moment and then he poured himself another coffee. Why do you suppose it's tonight? Because, why not some other night in the last century, or five centuries ago, or ten? Maybe it's because it was never October 19, 1969, ever before in history, and now it is and that's it, because this date means more than any other date ever meant because it's the year when things are as they are all over the world and that's why it's the end. There are bombers on their schedules both ways across the ocean tonight that'll never see land. That's part of the reason why. Well, he said, getting up, what shall it be? Wash the dishes. They washed the dishes and stacked them away with special neatness. At 8.30 the girls were put to bed and kissed goodnight and the little lights by their beds turned on and the door left open just a trifle. I wonder, said the husband, coming from the bedroom and glancing back, standing there with his pipe for a moment. What? If the door will be shut all the way, or if it'll be left just a little ajar so some light comes in. I wonder if the children know. No. Of course not. They sat and read the papers and talked and listened to some radio music and then sat together by the fireplace watching the charcoal embers as the clock struck 10.30 and 11 and 11.30. They thought of all the other people in the world who had spent their evening, each in his own special way. Well, he said at last. He kissed his wife for a long time. We've been good for each other. Anyway, do you want to cry? He asked. I don't think so. They moved through the house and turned out the lights and went into the bedroom and stood in the night cool darkness undressing and pushing back the covers. The sheets are so clean and nice. I'm tired. We're all tired. They got into bed and lay back. Just a moment, she said. He heard her get out of bed and go into the kitchen. A moment later, she returned. I left the water running in the sink. She said, something about this was so very funny that he had to laugh. She laughed with him, knowing what it was that she had done that was funny. They stopped laughing at last and lay in their cool night bed, their hands clasped, their heads together. Good night, he said, after a moment. Good night, she said. The space rocket Clarissa was nine days out from Venus. The members of the crew were also out for nine days. They were hunters, fearless expeditionists, who bagged game in Venusian jungles. At the start of our story, they are busy bagging their pants not to forget their eyes. A sort of lull has fallen over the ship. Note. A lull is a time warp that frequently attacks rockets and seduces its members into a siesta. It was during this lull that Anthony Quelch sat sprawled at his typewriter, looking as baggy as a bag of unripe grapefruit. Anthony Quelch, the cosmic clamor boy with a face like turned linoleum on the third term, 
busy writing a book, Fascism is Communism with a Shave, for which he would receive 367 rubles, 10 pazinkas, and incarceration in a cinema showing Gone with the Wind. The boys upstairs were throwing a party in the control room. They had been throwing the same party so long, the party looked like a worn out first edition of a trapeze artist. There is doubt in our minds as to whether they were trying to break the party up or just do the morning mopping and break the lease simultaneously. Arms, legs, and heads littered the deck. The boys, it seems, threw a party at the drop of a chin. Sort of a space cataclysm with rules and little regulation. Kind of an atomic convulsion in the front parlor. The neighbors never complained. The neighbors were 450 million miles away, and the boys were tighter than a catsup bottle at lunchtime. The last time the captain had looked up the hatch and called to his kitties in a gentle voice, hell, the kitties had thrown snowballs at him. The captain had vanished. Clever way they make these space bombs nowadays. A few minutes previous, the boys had been tearing up old amazings and throwing them at one another, but now they contended themselves with tearing up just the editors. Palmer was torn in half and he sat in a corner arguing with himself about rejecting a story for an hour before someone put him through an orange juice machine, killing him. Orange juice? Sorry now. And then they landed on Venus. How in heck they got back there so quick is a wonder of science. But there they were. Come on, girls, cried Quelch. Put on your shin guards. Get out there and dig ditches for good old WPA and the Rover Boys Academy, Earth Branch 27. Out into the staggering rain, they dashed. Five minutes later, they came back in, gasping, reeling. They had forgotten their corsets. The Venusians closed in like a million landlords. Charge, men, cried Quelch, running the other way. And then battle. What a fight, folks, cried Quelch. 20,000 Earthmen against two Venusians. We're outnumbered, but we'll fight. Bloosh, correction. 10,000 men fighting. 10,000 men fighting. Kerbloom, 100 men from Earth left. Boom, this is the last man speaking, folks. What a fight. I ain't had so much fun since... Help, someone just clipped my corset strings. Bwom, someone just clipped me. The field was silent. The ship lay gleaming in the pink light of the dawn. It was just blooming over the mountains like a pale flower. The two Venusians stood weeping over the bodies of the earthlings like onion peelers, or two women in a bargain basement. One Venusian looked at the other Venusian, and in a high-pitched, hoarse-sad voice said, A-A-A, this hit shouldn't happen to a dog, not a doity little dog. Drawn came peacefully like a beer barrel's rolling. The Flying Machine by Ray Bradbury In the year AD 400, the Emperor Yuan held his throne by the Great Wall of China, and the land was green with rain, readying itself toward the harvest. At peace, the people in his dominion neither too happy nor too sad. Early on the morning of the first day of the first week of the second month of the new year, the Emperor Yuan was sipping tea and fanning himself against a warm breeze when a servant ran across the scarlet and blue garden tiles, calling, Oh, Emperor, Emperor, a miracle. Yes, said the Emperor, the air is sweet this morning. No, no, a miracle, said the servant, bowing quickly. And this tea is good in my mouth, surely that is a miracle. No, no. Your Excellency, let me guess then, the sun has risen and a new day is upon us, or the sea is blue. That now is the finest of all miracles. Excellency, a man is flying. What? The Emperor stopped his fan. I saw him in the air, a man flying with wings. I heard a voice call out of the sky, and when I looked up, there he was, a dragon in the heavens with a man in its mouth, 
a dragon of paper and bamboo, colored like the sun and the grass. It is early, said the emperor, and you have just wakened from a dream. It is early, but I have seen what I have seen. Come, and you will see it too. Sit down with me here, said the emperor. Drink some tea. It must be a strange thing, if it is true, to see a man fly. You must have time to think of it even as I must have time to prepare myself for the sight. They drank tea. Please, said the servant at last, or he will be gone. The emperor rose thoughtfully. Now you may show me what you have seen. They walked into a garden, across a meadow of grass, over a small bridge, through a grove of trees, and up a tiny hill. There, said the servant. The emperor looked into the sky. And in the sky, laughing so high that you could hardly hear him laugh was a man, and the man was clothed in bright papers and reeds to make wings and the beautiful yellow tail, and he was soaring all about like the largest bird in a universe of birds, like a new dragon in a land of ancient dragons. The man called down to them from high in the cool winds of morning, I fly, I fly. The servant waved to him. Yes, yes. The emperor Yuan did not move. Instead he looked at the great wall of China now taking shape out of the farthest mist in the green hills, that splendid snake of stones which writhed with majesty across the entire land. That wonderful wall which had protected them for a timeless time from enemy hordes and preserved peace for years without number. He saw the town, nestled to itself by a river and a road and a hill, beginning to waken. Tell me, he said to his servant, Has anyone else seen this flying man? I am the only one, Excellency, said the servant, smiling at the sky, waving. The emperor watched the heavens another minute and then said, Call him down to me. Ho, come down, come down. The emperor wishes to see you. Call the servant, hands cupped to his shouting mouth. The emperor glanced in all directions while the flying man soared down the morning wind. He saw a farmer, early in his fields, watching the sky, and he noted where the farmer stood. The flying man alit with a rustle of paper and a creak of bamboo reeds. He came proudly to the emperor, clumsy in his rig, at last bowing before the old man. What have you done? demanded the emperor. I have flown in the sky. Your Excellency, replied the man. What have you done? said the Emperor again. I have just told you, cried the flyer. You have told me nothing at all. The Emperor reached out a thin hand to touch the pretty paper and the bird-like keel of the apparatus. It smelled cool, of the wind. Is it not beautiful, Excellency? Yes, too beautiful. It is the only one in the world, smiled the man. And I am the inventor. The only one in the world? I swear it. Who else knows of this? No one. Not even my wife, who would think me mad with the sun. She thought I was making a kite. I rose in the night and walked to the cliffs far away. And when the morning breezes blew and the sun rose, I gathered my courage, Excellency and leapt from the cliff. I flew. But my wife does not know of it. Well for her. Then, said the emperor, come along. They walked back to the great house. The sun was full in the sky now, and the smell of the grass was refreshing. The emperor, the servant, and the flyer paused within the huge garden. The emperor clapped his hands. Ho, guards. The guards came running. Hold this man. The guards seized the flyer. Call the executioner. 
said the emperor. What's this? cried the flyer, bewildered. What have I done? He began to weep, so that the beautiful paper apparatus rustled. Here is the man who has made a certain machine, said the emperor, and yet asks us what he has created. He does not know himself. It is only necessary that he create, without knowing why he has done so or what this thing will do. The executioner came running with a sharp silver axe. He stood with his naked, large-muscled arms ready, his face covered with a serene white mask. One moment, said the emperor. He turned to a nearby table upon which the sat a machine that he himself had created. The emperor took a tiny golden key from his own neck. He fitted his key to the tiny delicate machine and wound it up. Then he set the machine going. The machine was a garden of metal and jewels. Set in motion, the birds' songs in tiny metal trees, wolves walked through miniature forests, and tiny people ran in and out of sun and shadow, fanning themselves with miniature fans, listening to tiny emerald birds, and standing by impossibly small but tinkling fountains. Is it not beautiful? said the emperor. If you asked me what I have done here, I could answer you well. I have made birds sing, I have made forests murmur, I have set people to walking in this woodland, enjoying the leaves and shadows and songs. That is what I have done. But, oh, emperor, pleaded the flyer, on his knees the tears pouring down his face. I have done a similar thing. I have found beauty. I have flown on the morning wind. I have looked down on all the sleeping houses and gardens. I have smelled the sea and even seen it, beyond the hills, from my high place. And I have soared like a bird. Oh, I cannot say how beautiful it is up there, in the sky, with the wind about me, the wind blowing me here like a feather, there like a fan, the way the sky smells in the morning and how free one feels. That is beautiful, Emperor, that is beautiful too. Yes, said the Emperor sadly, I know it must be true. For I felt my heart move with you in the air and I wondered, what is it like? How does it feel? How do the distant pools look from so high? And how my houses and servants like ants? And how the distant towns not yet awake? Then spare me. But there are times, said the emperor, more sadly still, when one must lose a little beauty if one is to keep what little beauty one already has. I do not fear you, yourself, but I fear another man. What man? Some other man who, seeing you will build a thing of bright papers and bamboo like this. But the other man will have an evil face and an evil heart, and the beauty will be gone. It is this man I fear. Why? Why? Who is to say that someday just such a man, in just such an apparatus of paper and reed, might not fly in the sky and drop huge stones upon the Great Wall of China? Said the Emperor. No one moved or said a word. Off with his head said the emperor. The executioner whirled his silver axe. Burn the kite and the inventor's body and bury their ashes together, said the emperor. The servants retreated to obey. The emperor turned to his hand servant, who had seen the man flying. Hold your tongue. It was all a dream, a most sorrowful and beautiful dream. And that farmer in the distant field who also saw, tell him it would pay him to consider it only a vision. If ever the word passes around, you and the farmer die within the hour. You are merciful, Emperor. No, not merciful, 
said the old man. Beyond the garden wall he saw the guards burning the beautiful machine of paper and reeds that smelled of the morning wind. He saw he dark smoke climb into the sky. No, only very much bewildered and afraid. He saw the guards digging a tiny pit wherein to bury the ashes. What is the life of one man against those of a million others? I must take solace from that thought. He took the key from its chain about his neck and once more wound up the beautiful miniature garden. He stood looking out across the land at the great wall, the peaceful town, the green fields, the rivers and streams. He sighed. The tiny garden whirred its hidden and delicate machinery and set itself in motion. Tiny people walked in forests, tiny faces loped through sun-speckled glades and beautiful shining pelts, and among the tiny trees flew little bits of high song and bright blue and yellow color, flying, flying, flying in that small sky. Oh, said the emperor, closing his eyes, look at the birds, Look at the birds. Ready? Ready. Now? Soon. Did the scientists really know? Will it happen today? Will it? Look, look. See for yourself. The children pressed to each other like so many roses. So many weeds, intermixed, peering out for a look at the hidden sun. It rained. It had been raining for seven years. Thousands upon thousands of days, compounded and filled from one end to the other with rain, with the drum and gush of water, with sweet crystal fall of showers, and the concussion of storms so heavy that they were tidal waves, come over the islands. A thousand forests had been crushed under the rain, and grown up a thousand times to be crushed again. And this was the way life was forever on the planet Venus. And this was the schoolroom of the children of the rocket men and women who had come to a reigning world to set up civilization and live out their lives. It's stopping, it's stopping. Yes, yes, Margaret stood apart from them, from these children who could even remember a time when there wasn't rain, and rain and rain. They were all nine years old, and if there had been a day seven years ago when the sun came out for an hour and showed its face to the stunned world, they could not recall. Sometimes, at night, she heard them stir in remembrance, and she knew they were dreaming and remembering gold, or a yellow crayon, or a coin large enough to buy the world with. She knew they thought they remembered a warmness, like a blushing in the face and the body, and the arms and legs and trembling hands. But then they always awoke to the tatting drum, the endless shaking down of clear bead necklaces, upon the roof, the walk, the gardens, the forest, and their dreams were gone. All day yesterday they had read in class about the sun, about how like a lemon it was and how hot, and they had written small stories or essays or poems about it. I think the sun is a flower that blooms for just an hour. That was Marga's poem, read in a quiet voice in the still classroom, while the rain was falling outside. Oh, you didn't write that, protested one of the boys. I did, said Morgan. I did, William, said the teacher. But that was yesterday. Now the rain was slackening, and the children were crushed in great thick windows. Where's the teacher? She'll be back. She'd better hurry, we'll miss it. They turned on themselves like a feverish wheel, all tumbling spokes. Margaret stood alone. She was a very frail girl who looked as if she had been lost 
in the rain for years, and the rain had washed out the blue from her eyes, and red from her mouth, and the yellow from her hair. She was an old photograph, dusted from an album, whitened away. If she spoke at all, her voice would be a ghost. Now she stood, separate, staring at the rain and the loud, wet world beyond the huge glass. What are you looking at, said William. Margaret said nothing. Speak when you're spoken to. He gave her a shove, but she did not move. Rather, she let herself be moved only by him and nothing else. They edged away from her. They would not look at her. She felt them go away. And this was because she would play no games with them in the echoing tunnels of the underground city. If they tagged her and ran, she stood blinking after them and did not follow. When the class sang songs about happiness and life and, ga <coughs> and games, her lips barely moved. Only when they sang about the sun and the summer did her lips move as she watched the drenched windows. And then, of course, the biggest crime of all was that she had come only five years... <coughs> So she had come here only five years ago from Earth, and she remembered the sun, and the sky was when she was four in Ohio, and they, they had been on Venus all their lives, and they had been only two years old when the last sun came out, and had long since forgotten the color and heat of it, and the way it really was, but Margaret remembered, it's like a penny, she said once, eyes closed, no it's not, the children cried. It's like a fire, she said, in the stove. You're lying, you don't remember, cried the children. But she remembered and stood quietly apart from all of them, watching the pattern <coughs> and watched the patterning window. And once a month ago, she'd refused to shower in the school shower rooms. It clutched her hands to her, he her ears over her head, screaming the water mustn't touch her head. So after that, dimly, dimly she sensed it. She was different and they knew her difference, and kept away. There was talk that her father and mother were taking her back to Earth next year. It seemed vital to her that they do so. It would mean the loss of thousands of dollars to her family, and so the children hated her for all these reasons of big and little consequence. They hated her pale snow face, her waiting silence, her thinness, and her possible future. Get away, the boy gave her another shove. What are you waiting for? Then for the first time she turned and looked at him and looked at him, and what she was waiting for was in her eyes. Well, don't wait around, cried the boy savagely. You won't see nothing. Her lips moved. Nothing, he cried. It was all a joke, wasn't it? He turned to the other children. Nothing's happening today, is it? They all blinked at him, and then, understanding, laughed and shook their heads. Nothing, nothing. Oh, but Margaret whispered, her eyes helplessly. But this is the day. The scientists predict. They say. They know. The sun. All a joke, said the boy, and seized her roughly. Everyone, let's put her in a closet before the teacher comes. No, said Margaret, falling back. They surged about her, caught her up and bore her protesting, and then pleading and then crying back into a tunnel, a room, a closet, where they slammed door, where they slammed and locked the door. They stood looking at the door and saw it trembled from her beating and throwing herself against it. They, th they heard her muffled cries, then smiling, they turned and went out back down the tunnel just as the teacher arrived. Ready, children? She glanced at her watch. Yes, said everyone. Are we all here? Yes. The rain slacked still more. They crowded to the huge door and the rain stopped. It was as if the midst of a film concerning an avalanche, a tornado, a hurricane, a volcanic eruption. Something had first gone wrong with the sound apparatus. 
thus muffling and finally cutting off all noise, all the blasts and repercussions and thunders, and in second ripped the film, <coughs> ripped the film from the protect projector and inserted in its place a beautiful tropical slide, which did not move or tremor. The world ground to a standstill. The silence was so immense and unbelievable that you felt your ears had been stuffed, or you had lost your hearing altogether. The children put their hands to their ears. They stood apart. The door slid back, and the smell of the silent, waiting world came into them. The sun came out. It was the color of flaming bronze, and it was very large, and the, <coughs> and the sky around it was a blazing blue tile color, and the jungle burned with sunlight as the children, released from their spell, rushed out, yelling into the springtime. Now don't go too far, called the teacher after them. You've only two hours, you know. You wouldn't want to get caught out. But they were running and turning their faces up to the sky and feeling the, the sun on their cheeks like a warm iron. They were taking off their jackets and letting the sun burn their arms. Oh, it's better than the sun lamps, isn't it? Much, much better. They stopped running and stood in the great jungle that covered Venus, that grew and never stopped growing, tumultuously, even as you watched it. It was a nest of octopi clustering up, great arms of flesh-like weed wavering, flowering in this brief springtime. It was the color of rubber and ash. This jungle from the many years without sun it was the color of stones and white cheeses and ink. It was the color of the moon. The children lay out laughing on the jungle mattress and heard a sigh and squeak under the resilient and alive. They ran among the trees. They slipped and fell. They pushed each other. They played hide-and-seek and tag. But most of all, they squinted at the sun until tears ran down their faces. They put their hands up to the yellowness and that amazing blueness, and they breathed of the fresh, fresh air, and listened and listened to the silence, which suspended them in a blessed sea of no sound and no motion. They looked at everything and savored everything. Then wildly, like animals escaped from their caves, they ran and ran in shouting circles. They ran for an hour and did not stop running. And then, in the midst of their running, one of the girls wailed. Everyone stopped. The girl standing in the open held out her hand. Oh, look, look, she said, trembling. They came slowly to look at her open palm. In the center of it, cupped and huge, was a single raindrop. She began to cry. Looking at it, they looking at it, they glanced quietly at the sun. Oh, oh. A few cold drops fell on their noses and their cheeks and their mouths. The sun faded behind a stir of mist. A wind blew cold around them. They turned and started to walk back toward the underground houses. The underground house, their hands at their sides, their smiles vanishing away. A boom of thunder startled them, and like leaves before a new hurricane, they tumbled upon each other and ran. Lightning struck ten miles away, five miles away, a mile, a half a mile. The sky darkened into midnight. In a flash, the sky darkened into midnight in a flash. They stood in the doorway of the underground for a moment until it was raining hard. Then they closed the door and heard the gigantic sound of the rain falling in tons and avalanches everywhere and forever. Will it be seven more years? Yes, seven. Then one of them gave a little cry. Margaret. What? She's still in the closet where we locked her. Margaret. They stood if someone had driven them like so many stakes into the floor, 
They looked at each other, then looked away. They glanced out at the world that was raining now and raining steadily. They could not meet each other's glances. Their faces were solemn and pale. They looked at their hands and their feet, and their feet, their faces down. Margaret, one of the girls said, Well, no one moved. Go on, whispered the girl. They walked slowly down the hall in the sound of cold rain. They turned through the doorway to the room in the sound of storm and thunder, lightning on their faces blue and terrible. They walked over to the closet door slowly and stood by it. Behind the closet door was only silence. They unlocked the door, and even more slowly, they unlocked the door even more slowly, and let Margaret out. 